0: The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. This is Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia. Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, is here with me today on this Zoom call. And we're very happy to be speaking with Tykee James. He's the government affairs coordinator for the National Audubon Society and also co-founder of the May 2020 Black Birders Week. Hello, Taiki. So nice to see you. Uh,
1: so happy to be here.
0: Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. You uh, hit on the, the present day, so I do work at the National Audubon Society. Uh, but before that, even maybe two years ago before I got this position, I was not thinking about a career in environmental advocacy, much less at a large environmental nonprofit um, I went to school for math, computer science, and teaching. I was convinced I was going to be a math teacher, um, but I was actually never really that good at math. Um, however, I had a job, a side job, uh, working at the Cobbs Creek Community Environmental Education Center as an assistant manager for an education program that recruited high school youth, a uh, program that I went through and was then promoted. Uh, to, and And that's where I also started my uh, love of birds, where it was a job, where I was a public educator, speaking directly to folks about going into the park. And I realized that I wasn't seeing the birds if I wasn't also looking at environmental conditions. And, you know, the lack of streetlights, park benches, and trash cans are something that I saw in my, you know, beginner birding world um, and the understanding that the center at Cobbs Creek was built in 1937 during the works progress administration. Um, And, you know, up until the eighties was used as a horse stable for the police officers in the park and coinciding with the move bombing that happened now 35, 36 years ago, that community, that zip code, that part of the neighborhood of West Philly, You know became a target of systemic neglect and when i started working there it was my understanding that it is the effect of police brutality and violence on black and brown bodies that presents a cultural and a time-bound and even a physical barrier to going to the park because before it was a park it was a place that you didn't go And you knew it was a place that you didn't go because you've seen or heard something that happened there. Somebody else would tell you, your parents then will tell you, and then you tell your children why not to go to the park. And so my understanding of birding was really an understanding of history with my neighbors and a history of the park and a history of the city. It wasn't until I got a random call from a state representative, that state representative being Representative Donna Bullock, who Wasn't so random for me. I was a big fan of her work. Um, She offered me a position to be her scheduler. Then when she saw that I was an environmental educator for a couple of years and that for me, it was under, it was an understanding of connecting people and nature. She saw that that's also pretty good to have somebody advise you on environmental policy. And through that office, I met a lot of environmental advocates and, and realized that a lot of that field, mostly white people, that didn't make that connection that I saw so clearly between the environment and people, public health and environmental conditions, or or even the history of people in neighborhoods and public health. Um, But again, I wasn't interested in seeing myself into that career until I got an offer from the National Audubon Society. Now I live in DC, um, native lands of the Nakachunk peoples, where I, Similarly, do bird walks, meeting people where they are, understanding, you know, the history, the place and, and understanding um, the conditions of the environment where I'm birding. But now I do it uh, to organize bird walks with members of Congress and uh, with congressional staff. I used to have monthly bird walks on the hill uh, up until I broke my ankle last January and then coronavirus. <laughs> and now <laughs> the insurrection this January there's not a lot of folks doing bird walks or doing much of walking around on Capitol Hill.
0: Taiki, you just brought forward so many different issues. It's not just that you love birds.
1: Um, well, I mean, birds are are as, as avian as they are. They are also very terrestrial because they land on branches. They, they exist in habitats, habitats that I walk to or have been driven to. And I think that an understanding of birds is an appreciation of Earth in the same way that you understand birds, you're understanding history, you're understanding and making connections with people.
0: Last year, there was a Black Birders Week. So maybe you could tell us why that was.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think a big reason that Black Birders Week occurred and had such an impact that it had, I think are twofold. One reason is that when the Black experience was part of the national conversation, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, a lot of what folks were focusing on in the black experience was trauma, which is true and historic and can be seen in a lot of ways. However, Black Birders Week saw that the black experience goes beyond trauma, that it includes joy, pride, resilience, strength, and style. And the six days of programming, but the seven days that week was very much dedicated to forwarding that narrative. And the second reason that I believe Black Birders Week last year was so special and so impactful was that it was local in so many places. You know, it was local to anyone who was on Twitter or Instagram primarily saw the hashtag and saw fellow black birders and saw burden groups with statements of solidarity and some that went further to actually act on those. And But it's interesting to think about now a year, about a year from it last year, uh, where those organizations are and what they have to say now, considering their, their strong statements, their strong support, their strong actions, and to see now this year if that's led to any significant changes. I think there are a lot of things coinciding. Uh, with Black Birders Week, the fact of coronavirus, people aren't necessarily meeting up. So there isn't like a centralized Black Birders Week headquarters. There isn't like a a single walk that's just for Black Birders everywhere in the country. I think that the fact that it's so decentralized and so localized uh, makes it possible for people to celebrate and uplift Black Birders wherever they are. And that can mean very different things to different people. Because I would imagine my experience in Philadelphia as a birder would be different if I lived in Texas, for example. I mean, most of my bird watching has been in cities, and most of my bird watching is with folks who are doing it for the very first time or, or near that. And, and so, the way I would want to celebrate Black Birders Week this year is doing a big week in DC. A big week in the birding community basically means see as many birds as you can, kind of challenge. And so my challenge is seven days, as many birds as I can see, maybe not as many birds as I can see, because I'm not that good, but I'll figure out some type of challenge. I mean, it will be a challenge enough to do one thing every single day that involves me going outside, going to a new place, Um, but I'm also finding ways to really connect with communities that appreciate nature in ways that go beyond birding because I know I love birding, but there are things that are also out there like reptiles. So shout out to herpetologists. There's also plants. People love looking at plants and butterflies, you know, and I think that bird watching is just one of the ways that that brings me outside and something that I hope can inspire other people. And so when I think about Black Birders Week, I also think about how the outdoors community should be a lot more reflective of the diversity that it seeks to be a champion for,
0: you mentioned joy and and how birdwatching might help increase the joy for black people experiencing birding. Like you said, possibly for the first time.
1: You know, I'm going to speak from my experience. When I was doing a lot of my birdwatching in Philly, when it was my job as an environmental educator, I found that everybody has a story about birds, whether it's the uh, American Robin that greets you when you're doing your gardening, the Northern Cardinal that you see when you're at your bus stop or the buzzards and turkey vultures that you just see in the air in the afternoon sometimes and what you may think that they're doing. There's you know, are they watching you <laughs> or do they find food? Everybody has a story, you know, and and even if it's not their story, they'll tell you that their weird uncle went out and counted as many birds as he could with his friends on a cold winter's day just because. And I may be familiar with that as the Christmas bird count. Someone else may call it (laughs) something else. Um, I truly believe that bird watching has been a way for me to meet people where they are, especially when they're my neighbors. So I can understand these things that folks have stories about birds. Um, but now that it's more of my job, I'm finding that birdwatching is a way to build movements. Birdwatching builds coalitions. And Black Birders Week showed that. And the work that I do at the National Audubon Society is reflective of that as well.
0: I understand that sometimes Black birders or naturalists, they face challenges. Um, why do you think that that is?
1: The, the short answer is white supremacy? The long answer is the status quo. The status quo is the thing that makes folks feel comfortable when they think that they're making progress. But the secret of the status quo is to confuse, pacify, and normalize itself. And the environmental movement, this country, let me say, in particular, um, a lot of the environmental movement started as a white supremacist, anti immigrant, patriarchal based activity project. You know, you can look at John Muir, who started the Sierra Club. You can talk about John James Audubon. John James Audubon may not be the founder of the National Audubon Society, but he himself uh, is an inspiration of the namesake, and he himself held enslaved people as property to do his birding bidding. And if we do not consider that as part of how the environmental movement started in this country, then it will be harder to answer that question of where is this discrimination coming from? You know, discrimination is just a practice of this white supremacist notion that the environment and thus its benefits will only go towards certain people. And when we can look today at the contemporary environmental movement, environmental justice and environmental racism are always, for some reason, playing second in the, oh, also that, when we're talking about climate or when we're talking about uh, environmental effects. It seems that the folks who are hurt first and worst are always second to be considered when we are trying to achieve environmental progress. And the root cause of that is the normalization and the evolution then of thereof of white supremacy in the environmental movement. Now, I'm not saying that people are walking around throwing out racial slurs. White supremacy is not just racial slurs. It's also the imbalance of power. It's also the perpetuation of inequality. It can happen, of course, in the movement in a lot of visible ways, but there's a lot of internal ways in, the, in organizations. For example, a lack of transparency and compensation perpetuates pay inequality. And pay inequality disproportionately affects Black women than anyone else in the workforce. And so if we are trying to achieve an environmental movement that provides benefits for all people, we should make sure that the people who are in that movement are also getting paid for that work equally. Because when we don't, then the progress that we are achieving becomes progress for folks who've already had privilege, and it becomes progress for folks who don't want to be treated or feel the experience of a minority. Because even the idea of climate anxiety is one that has, I feel, mostly pictured in predominantly white climate conversations. Because the idea of living like the first and worst and most marginalized creates some anxiety. But the reality of those black and brown bodies already existing, already persevering, surviving through the climate crisis. You know, it predates the idea of climate anxiety. It predates the pushes for global warming. The, those effects and, and those voices have not only been underheard. And underserved, but also underrepresented when we are thinking about what counts as environmental progress. So, when we think about discrimination on the interpersonal level, we have to see that it's also connected to an institutional level of who has been included and excluded from the environmental movement.
0: You've mentioned a lot of issues, and a lot of listeners probably are thinking, well, what can I do personally? Do you have suggestions for listeners?
1: Absolutely. I picture in three, there's one, an interpersonal solution. There's two, institutional solution. And then there's three, a structural solution. So in the interpersonal solutions, that's you and I, us and we. That's normalize how you demonstrate your values. If you say Black Lives Matter, act like it. It should not be a surprise to your supporters, to your friends, to anybody that you believe Black Lives Matter and you're willing to act on it. That's just an example. I value history deeply. I value the acknowledgement of humanity. It can look a lot of different ways depending on what your values are. Now on the institutional level, so that's within an organization, that's within a group, within a committee, within a club, you should rationalize your rules, charter, bylaws, constitution, code book, whatever it's called, go through every word every letter, every punctuation and justify it. And if you can justify all those rules for these reasons and those reasons do not conflict with your values, I would love to see those rules (laughs) because I think you have a perfect set because it may be hard for you to justify pay inequity because you don't want to tell other employees what salaries are because you don't want to find a solution to racial discrimination because you may not want to find a a solution towards a grievance policy or an accountability policy for folks who allege harassment, that just means you you value more the status quo than the changes needed to make the environmental movement, for example, more inclusive and more equitable. And when you need to change those rules, find opportunities to co-create so that the people who are affected by those rules, the stakeholders of those rules, are a part of the rulemaking process. Now on the third level, structural, that's groups of institutions you must organize. And you can organize in group chats like we did for Blackbirders Week. You can organize in committees, or you can organize in union. Unionization is a key element of bringing results to the workplace where the employer say where their values are, but their actions reflect otherwise. I think employees then they have a responsibility, I feel, to work with management to enable working conditions that truly reflect values that are espoused, you know, by, by these organizations or reflect values of the workers that are doing the work, that are executing the mission. You know, all these different ways to organize rely on people power because it will take the power of people to dismantle some of these big structural issues that we're still facing today. And that... We have to realize that on the structural level, it cannot be an individual's sole responsibility to dismantle this or to solely take the burden of doing that work. Everybody has a role in this movement, even if that work is getting somebody ready for their day one start in the movement. You know, I think everybody has a role to provide some form of orientation for others so that they understand why this movement needs us to be inclusive, why this movement demands that if we are considering a solution, it is a solution that rises all boats and not one that is only featured as benefits for white people.
0: Are there particular organizations you feel are doing the work you believe needs to be done?
1: I'm happy to be joined by some really great leaders that that I've met through birding, that I've met through the environmental movement that are helping me answer that question. What organization do I need to be a part of? Some of our some of our answers and me talking with them is why be part of an organization when we can be part of the solution? I'm happy to be the co-chair of the Black and Latinx Birders Scholarship Fund, a scholarship that is just about a year old, that seeks to, and until college is free and accessible to all people, we'll be offering uh, two $5,000 scholarships to individuals that identify as Black or Latinx. And I invite folks to uh, apply for that scholarship. Look at amplifythefuture.com. And if you don't think you're qualified, uh, we would also love your support. Um, that's that's one thing that I feel like is part of this solution. I think another thing is I worked with a friend to start a a racial justice education project called Freedom Birders. That's resourced by the lessons and inspiration from the civil rights movement, particularly the Freedom Riders, Black Lives Matter movement, and Black Birders Week. And it is a co-facilitated program um, that has these grounding conversations that I hope brings the burning community to a more conscious place, but ultimately inspires more leaders in the outdoors and um, leaders in general to think more critically about where they are, how they got there. Because when you think about the answers to those questions, you can think more clearly about what the solutions need to be. And when we host these grounding conversations, you know, we look at these stories of the movement of people, the observation of wildlife, and the recognition of land. And May 4th, we'll have a special launch of, of our website, freedombirders.org. Where folks can see more about the project, how they can help and how they can be a freedom birder themselves. And I think part of what the solution is is also having some fun because, you know, I hope to be in this movement for a very long time. And I hope that this movement is not just about the challenges, the burdens, and the hurdles.
0: What I wanted to ask you to end with is what message do you want to leave the listeners with about Earth Day?
1: I hope in the observation of Earth Day, people take a moment to think about what it took to get here, who has not made it here with us, and what it will take to truly make an Earth Day that's worth celebrating globally.
0: Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: I don't think we're making environmental progress if we're not dismantling white supremacy and anti-Black racism. I don't think Earth Day is a full celebration of the global community if we are not achieving environmental progress for the global community
0: okay was there anything else we might have missed that you want to mention
1: i remember scheduling representative bullock's interviews on the show and like i always wondered what it was like and i know it wasn't over zoom but like (laughs) it's just a deep honor that like I got an email from you asking for that, thinking about, you know, what it took for me to get here and how Representative Bullock even encouraged me to leave the nest of Philly, so to speak. So I can get some wings out here in D.C. And um, as as scary and as adventurous as it's been, I'm very grateful for her leadership and her support and her guidance. Um, And I'm really happy that she and I can share this experience and honor being a guest here.
0: It's been absolutely delightful talking to you. And I really wish you well in your new endeavors.
1: Well, I have plenty. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you so much for all the deep thought you put into these things.
1: I'm always happy to help.
0: I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important, underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. Thank you for listening.